1: Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account, by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. You've got Beth with you today, along with Chris. Chris, how are you feeling today?
2: I'm good, thanks mate. How are you?
1: Not too bad at all, not too bad at all. All the better for seeing you today. Do you want to jump in and tell us who we've got joining us today?
2: Yeah, this morning. I'm actually quite quite pleased about this one because it's not often I get to do World War II aviation. Everyone forgets I have a secret thing for this. So today I'm glad that we can introduce Patrick Erickson, who is a historian who specialises in Second World War aviation, especially in the airmen's personal perspectives and experiences. His first book, Alarm Start, focused on the German experience of the war. But he's now here to talk to us about his new book, Tally Ho, RAF Tactical Leadership, in the Battle of Britain in July 1940. So Patrick, welcome to History Hack, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks very much Chris and Bess. Very happy to be here and appreciate the
3: opportunity.
2: Oh, absolutely, it's a really interesting book and I thought it's quite good that it talked about July 1940 rather than everyone looks at August. But um, to start off, the fighter units that have been in the Battle of France didn't really get much of a chance to um, learn lessons about how to engage enemy bombers because the Blitzkrieg was so effective. How vital are these first nine days in July? Well,
3: I think first, just a few comments about France. When I still remember, the RAF pilots were almost all pre-war professionals. These are some of the best people around, and uh, their proportion would go down pretty fast as, as as active combat went on. So these are very well trained people, very well motivated, and taking the circumstances into account, they did very well for themselves. They appreciated that a lot of what they'd been taught and the methods and so on were out of date and had to be changed, but they didn't have the opportunity to sit, to sit down and think and talk to their fellows and actually do something about that. You have to remember, in France, the accommodation was terrible. There was no mess. They would eat in some local bistro or little, you know, village cafe. The the ground crew were much worse off than. Then the pilots were often the ground crew were not of their own squadron. They'd be shared between squadrons. Uh, the radar coverage was very small and minimal. There was no control system as would be there in the Battle of Britain, which is one of the very, very critical things. Uh, radio reception, and that's also to remember your radio reception for the World War Two fighters in 1940 would have been about 45 miles. Yeah. And uh, that can be extended with, with uh, you know, booster stations further forward, but that was not the case in France. So these people were fighting for their lives every day. It was chaos. They were fighting to get sleep, to get food, to get fuel. These just aren't the conditions to do anything really concrete about what you know is wrong. Hmm. So once they got back to the UK, they could start to do this. But in June, after Dunkirk, They were also taking in a lot of new pilots, a lot of new equipment, even new ground crew, new aircraft. And uh, most of the incoming pilots then were no longer pre-war professionals. These are newly trained people. They have to be, you have to try and get them up to being able to survive their first few combat missions and then have a chance to survive longer and become useful. So in in that context, the first nine days of, of July are very important because they learned if they learned nothing else in those first nine days, they learned about attacking single bombers or small little formations of bombers. And that's a much better lesson to absorb than going straight into formations of bombers.
2: Yeah.
3: And and they learned pretty soon that uh, what it would really take to destroy a bomber on average, and one must always be careful of averages and what they mean, would be an attack by a full section of three fighters and firing about, on average, 5,000 rounds between them, which is about the load of two two and a bit fighters. So there's there's no ways, on average, a single British fighter could take down a German bomber. And obviously, while doing this and getting used to this, they would be thinking ahead and knowing that the large bomber formations would be coming in the future. And they would have been thinking, what can we do about them? Because that's a whole different ballgame altogether. The other thing in early July and right through July, they were starting to use, to a very small degree, different methods to attack them. What they'd been taught with the so-called fighter area attacks were almost all from the rear and from the stern quarters. And uh, this is not an efficient method, because if you think about it, the bombers are cruising at about 200 miles an hour, your fighters are coming in at about 300 miles an hour, which means their actual approach speed is 100 miles an hour. It's slow, the differential. And uh, the bomber's defense to the rear was stronger than in any other direction. And they were trained to fire to the rear as well. So it's really putting yourself in the worst position to do that. And obviously, when you're being shot at, you learn these kinds of lessons very fast. And some of the change methodology was deliberate and some was by accident. Really, it depends how the controllers are getting you into these German bombers. You know, as you approach them, does the controller bring you in from behind, from the side, from the front, wherever? And this is not really that predictable because the radar system wasn't accurate enough. The bomb is changing course while the controller is vectoring the people in. So it's it's a bit of a gamble where you're going to end up when you see them. But this is the whole point of this book is. I'm trying to understand what did the formation leader, whether it's the squadron leader, flight lieutenant, whatever, what did he do and what did he think when he first saw the enemy? Because you've got a minute perhaps less to decide how you're going to attack them, from which way, you know, are you going to put your people in line astern or keep them in the vic, et cetera, et cetera. And also you've got to try and survive yourself while you're doing this. It's, it's not just a an abstract thing like a military command on a battlefield, are you not under fire yourself? These people are just as much under fire, the leaders, as anyone else. So he has to make a lot of rapid decisions that are life-threatening or not in a, in a few tens of seconds. And uh, the accumulation of these decisions right through the battle, if they had been wrong, he would have lost the battle. He had to make enough right decisions, enough of the time, that uh, they could cause enough casualties while not suffering too many themselves. It's a, it's a very subtle, very deadly gamble that depends on your decisions. And obviously those decisions get better the more experience you get.
1: Absolutely. So moving into the July part of the Battle of Britain, mm. see the official start date for the Battle of Britain is considered to be, you know, it's the 10th of July, yes. you know, yes. keeps a nice, firm date there that we can but, all work off. That's when the Luftwaffe start attacking en masse. How yeah. do the squadrons start to initially deal with this challenge that
3: presents itself in July? Well, on July the 10th, the the main big raid that got all the attention uh, and produced most of the casualties on both sides was two groupmen of German bombers. It's about 60 bombers coming in, Dorniers heading for a convoy just uh, off Folkestone. And uh, they had an escort of 109s high up and me one tens a bit lower down accompanying them. And this was a new tactic coming up by the Germans. As they got close to the convoy, the fighters being faster surged ahead and formed a circular formation just offshore of Folkestone with the 109s on top and the 110s at medium levels. And the bombers, the plan was the bombers would go over their target, the convoy, and then straight under the protection of the circling formation. So it was a sort of way of protecting them as they turned off target. And they weren't going to put the circle above the convoy, because then they get shot at by the ACAC, which nobody wants. And so they'd go under the circle and then off back across the Channel to France. That was the idea. And the RAF had never seen one of these circles before. It was something new for them. So uh, the squadrons coming in and seeing the circle had to think up what they were going to do about it on the spot right away. And uh, they sent in four squadrons that actually made contact with the slot, with the bombers and the circle. And the first three squadrons were distracted from their target, the bombers, to the circle. So of the four squadrons, three of them got attracted to the circle, but the, the controllers did a very good job because they put the first squadron in the Spitfires on top and they came down from the top and the second squadron, Hurricanes, came in at medium levels. And the third squadron, again, a Spitfires, came in late at the bottom as the circles were breaking up. So the controllers already, this is the 10th of July only, were already doing a pretty clever job. And that was essential. The pilots are much more advantaged when the controller is clever than the other way around. Anyway, so the top squadron went in, 74 squadron, and they... Basically, the spiral dives right down into the circle shooting as they went. That's the best they could do. I mean, you, you're flying there and suddenly you see the circle and you've got to attack it. and You've never done it before. No one else has ever done it before. There's no pre-existing advice to, 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 to depend on. And then the second squadron coming in at mid-level is 56th squadron. And uh, they looked at this lot and they went straight in from the side, flew across the, the circles and fired on them at both sides. And one pilot, Jeffrey Page, who became quite well known later on, saw the opportunity and did that, and then he turned in the opposite direction to the rotation of the circles and had a go at them like that. And that was that's certainly one of the most effective methods to tackle them, but it's extremely dangerous and it's very difficult to do because what's happening is you're now circling against the rotation of the other people, which means the speed has doubled the speed of approach and you're aiming has to be pretty spot on. But it doesn't really matter. You just open fire as you're going right down inside that circle. You're going to hit someone wherever you are. And then the third squadron just took on the stragglers as the circle broke up. So that's what happened with the circles. And then three out of four squadrons have been distracted. So the Germans achieved what they wanted. But the fourth squadron, which is Triple One Squadron, uh, was vectored in onto the bombers. Basically from ahead, but several thousand feet higher up, and uh, they didn't do a head-on attack, as you can read in probably nine out of ten books on the Battle of Britain. And that misunderstanding comes from from reading the actual the documentation the squadron provided. Because the very first sentence or two says they approached the bombers from head on, and a lot of people haven't read further than that. And they did approach them from head on, several thousand feet above, and then they flew right past them turn around and attack them from behind. Mm. So the famous head-on attack on the 10th of July didn't actually take place. But Triple One Squadron was was a was a, a fairly tough outfit, and uh, they went in from behind, and their tactics were actually bad because they went in line and one after the other. The entire 12 aircraft came in one behind the other. So each individual aircraft was subject to the full defensive fire from the bomber formation. Instead of coming in three or six abreast and spreading the fire between them, but they still did a pretty really good job. They shot down two of them. They hit another one badly enough that crest was written off in France and two more were damaged, and they lost one aircraft and pilot. And that's something that's often ignored. That I like to bring in is the the aggressiveness of the attacking formations. This is, you know, there's, there's, there's formations you can fly, there's tactics you can apply, but the aggression is incredibly important. Some units have it, some don't. And one, or one certainly had it, and uh,
2: it makes a big difference. Uh, absolutely. I know from later in the war they said that uh, 109 pilots uh, that were aggressive that would uh, for, literally fly right into enemy formation, B-17 formations, were that much more effective than the more, I don't want to use the word, no, no, cautious would be a better word than nervous, yes. Yes. who would sit back. Because um, when you're a tail gunner and you see a 109 heading, uh, a single engine fighter heading towards you at maximum speed, firing his guns, you blink. Mm. <laughs> so
3: we can all be thankful we we weren't involved in the war and we're not in a war right now. It's, it's not a pretty thing at all. Uh,
2: absolutely. I mean, just looking at the maths of it, you I think it was a MG 34 machine gun in the back of a Heinkel. And you've got a hurricane coming towards you with six to eight three oh three. You're already they've already outnumbered you. Their guns outnumber you. Yes. Eight to
3: one.
2: <laughs> so, but so as the, the Battle of Britain opening, Kennel Camp, the battle for the Channel is, uh, is well and truly underway, mm-hmm. and the Luftwaffe are returning uh, return the following day uh, to try and draw the RAF out over convoys. Are they are the pilots actually starting to implement the the lessons that they're learning from the previous weeks?
3: Well, that one I'm going to have to say yes and no because there's two main raids on that day the one is a yes and the other one is a no Uh, the yes raid was uh, the germans came in from portland and bringing in stuka dive bombers and they came in from uh from the east of portland and then just south of portland they turned north uh, actually a bit southeast of portland turned north and approached from the south west and there were two british formations up, six aircraft of 601 squadron and three aircraft from 87 squadron, each with very, very good leaders. The 601 boys were, their leader was uh, Sir Archibald Hope, mm. and the, the, the 387 ones were led by squadron leader Duar. And these were both experienced leaders and they waited to see what the Germans were going to do and then they came in from unexpected directions. One came in from the west, the other ones came in from the south, from the sea. And the Germans don't expect to be attacked from the sea, because that's where they're coming from. And uh, what was unusual in this, the Germans had tried an experiment, which they never repeated, where they had some ME-1110s flying several thousand feet below the Stukas. So when the Stukas circled and dived, they'd be diving through protective fighters, and they thought this was going to help them. Well, well, the British fighters quite happily shot at the Stukas and the 1110s as they went down. But but the problem with Stukas is when they start diving, they've got dive brakes. they can dive at a much lower speed than any fighter can. Even if the fighter throttles right back, it's generally a heavier aircraft, and it's just going to go zooming right past the Stukas. So they've got two choices. They can either go to the bottom and wait for the Stukas to drop their bombs and pull out of their dives, and as they pull out of their dives at their lowest speed, they Low speed means poor controllability, and they turn in to get away back to France. That's one time to hit them and cause quite a bit of damage. And the other way to hit them, which is even better because you do it before they bomb, Stukas would bomb almost always staffel by staffel. There'd be three staffels each of eight or nine aircraft, and they'd form a circle and then drop off one by one, one off the other, and go down to bomb. And if you could hit them while they're in the circle, they're looking down at the targets. They're estimating when they go down. They're not looking around for how they're being attacked. So that's an even better time to attack them. And these two squadrons basically did hit them at both of these events. So in that case, to answer your questions, this is the yes answer. Because each of the leaders did a good job positioning themselves. They hit them at exactly the right times. And everything worked out pretty well. And this is based really on their experience, and they hadn't had much, many of them hadn't had much experience yet of the Stukas, because they weren't met that often in combat in France. The French met them more than the British did, so, but word passes very quickly amongst pilots. They talk, that's why the mess is important, absolutely, because the RAF has has had then, and probably still now, has the tradition that you didn't talk shop in the mess. There were no formal sit down discussions and meetings about what are we going to do with the next raid that was frowned upon. But informal discussion and social interaction in the mess became very important because it passed the messages along in a socially acceptable way. And then the no example is another raid on that day, also in the Western Channel in Portsmouth, where a small bomber formation came up. The Solent from from the. Southwest. I'm sorry about all the geography, but geography is important because you're positioning fighters, geography is the framework you do it in. And uh, two squadrons are put on, there's two full squadrons. And the first was again 601, but led by a different person, Willie Rose Morehouse. And he came in from behind. He, he halved his squadron, he sent one half up to take on the ME-1110 Escort, which was a good move. But then he came in straight from behind. Once again, fine, you cause casualties, but you take casualties. And then he managed to to disrupt them enough that they didn't really get very far bombing forces at all. They really missed all their targets. And as they turned off the other squadron, 145 came in at them again from behind. So uh, that's the no answer. They must surely by then have been aware that the best defensive fire is to the rear. But the problem is, you know, if you vectored in and you're ready behind the bombers to get alongside them for a beam attack or way ahead of them for a head-on attack, it's going to take a lot of time. And by the time you get yourself placed there, they might be gone already. So, uh, and again, must realize, these are people sitting on a parachute on a metal seat that's not very comfortable. You're flying a fighter, at so plus miles now. You're breathing pure oxygen. You're scared and you're in charge. You've got to try and ensure that the people around you most of them get out of this alive and some of them shoot down the enemy and that you yourself are going to be alive in five minutes' time. It's in that framework that the decisions are taken. So it's very easy for us to write the book now and say they should have done this or they should have done that. But put yourself in that position, you know. It's uh, it's understandable. Mistakes are always going to be made in any military operation. It's learning from them and rectifying them that really counts. Absolutely.
1: and. Just to, obviously you just highlighted Boris, there were a couple of, of the different raids, and obviously you mention mentioned geography as well. <laughs> um what was the uh the I have to say, just to keep this question quite simple to allow you to elaborate. What was the raid
3: that wasn't? Oh, well, that's a very maybe maybe the title sounds much more dramatic than reality, but it was <laughs> it was a formation of of ME 110s uh coming in. Caught on radar, and you know, the radar operator would be able to see the speed. After a few minutes of tracking, they'd see that these things are coming in quite fast, and they realize they're probably fighters, and then they suspect they're fighter bombers. And that was the case here. They thought this was a fighter bomber raid coming in in the Western Channel, akin to what the problems group of Ten did on the Eastern Channel. And so they sent up fighters to intercept the so called bombing raid. But it was actually just a group of ME-1110s escorting one or maybe two reconnaissance aircraft, nothing more. So that's why the raid, that wasn't. It was seen by the by the radar system as a raid, but it was just fighters. And uh, this is another example of tactical learning because the, the, the main fighter formation that intercepted the, the ME-1110s got above them and watched them going around in a circle and didn't know what to do about it. And eventually, one junior pilot broke away from the back and dived straight down into the middle and another one did a very risky maneuver, attacked him from underneath and that broke up the circle but that's not really the way it should be done. That's a dan- very dangerous techniques and mm-hmm. no Battle of Britain RAF leader could afford to practice dangerous techniques in the long term. You could do it occasionally and get away with it, sometimes yes sometimes no but not to be recommended in the long term. This is a battle of attrition. Mm. The percentages count. So there's nothing more to say about the raid that wasn't.
2: You mentioned them already in in that answer. But my, one of my favourite formations is Upper Bunch Group of 210. Who were they, and what were the challenges that they brought to the Battle of Britain?
3: Yeah, probably Group of 2110 were a were a mixed bunch. Some of them came from the Stugas. Some of them came from the Me 1110s And uh, the commander, Rubensdorfer, was actually someone that before the unit was formed, worked at the Rechland Test Center, which is, uh, you know, where it's like a Farnborough, basically, the German equivalent of Farnborough. So he came from a background where experimentation and new techniques and trying out practically new ideas was part and parcel of things. And they formed this unit at the beginning of July. Uh, three staffers, two of 1110s and one of 109s. And uh, so that's some of the background. And he was a pretty able commander. And the challenges they brought were this. The the 1110s could could come in cruising at about four and three quarter miles a minute. And the 109s could get a bit more. They'd come in cruising at about five miles a minute. So this whole formation would be coming in extremely fast. and any radar tracking of any distance would probably identify them as fighters and not as a bomber threat. So that was the one problem, the speed with which they came in, and that makes it harder to vector your own fighters onto them in time to intercept them. Mm-hmm. and uh yeah, a formation of any one tens carrying bombs, you can't really do a beam attack. they're going too fast. So you're either gonna have to get at the head on or from behind. And the other problem, which was probably even worse, is their tactics were to go in on a heading straight for the target. So when they got near the target and it, and at this stage of the battle, it was mainly shipping out on the high seas or ships in harbor. They would be coming straight for it and they'd just dive down and bomb and turn around and go off. So by the time the intercepting fighters got there, all they'd seize the back of them a lot of the time. But with time the controllers learned and, and got the opposition there faster. But they were really difficult to counter when they were attacking on the sea and at the coastline. Once they started going inland later in August, then they become much more vulnerable. Because then they are in your operational area for a much longer period of time. They can't just zip in and zip out again. And in fact they the unit got largely destroyed on the fifteenth of August already when they when they made an attack on Croydon. Hmm. Uh, then they lost about five or six aircraft, but they lost key personnel,
2: including Rumanthorfer himself. So they were never quite the same again after that. Uh, absolutely. And as much as I, uh, the mesh 110 is possibly, probably my favorite aircraft from the Second World War. But its abilities as a fighter are not fantastic. It's not, if, if the uh, single seat fighters get amongst them, they're not that maneuverable or not as maneuverable. And so can't. Uh, can't duel them as efficiently, and once they've dropped their bombs, they're essentially fighters again. So can I just comment on the Me one
3: one ten? Yeah, yeah, go for it. You you're quite right. They were not manoeuvrable. They were clumsy, and obviously a big twin engine aircraft can never compete with a smaller single engine aircraft in terms of turning power, manoeuvrability, etc. But the they were you know, the Spitfire and Hurricane are best below twenty thousand feet. Hmm. And both fighters, the 110 and the 109, better best above that, the 109 even higher, up at 20,000, 30,000 feet would be their optimum level, and the 110 would do best about between 20 and 25,000 feet. Yeah. So if they managed to get into a fight at that altitude, they were much better. But the later, much later in August, towards the end of August and early September, the 1110s had some success. And the tactic they used was using the strength of the aircraft. The 1110 was a heavy aircraft, so they had a good diving speed. And a, dive and a dive down, fire and zoom back up was the best tactic. And when they did that in large numbers, then they were pretty effective and they caused severe casualties, especially the 31st of August and the first about four days of September.
2: So they were not a total dead loss either. Absolutely, and they had the firepower, nose firepower, four machine yeah. guns and cannon, which is absolutely devastating if you yeah. they catch you. What's also just relevant,
3: <laughs> the cannons were in the floor of the cockpit, mm. and the cannon breeches in the floor of the cockpit. So you can imagine the noise, and yeah. and, and the cordite gases coming out of there, and the, the poor rear gunner had to reload them manually when they ran out of ammunition.
2: So it's uh, <laughs> the realities of war. Absolutely. <laughs> Looks good on the design board, but not so much yeah. in practice.
1: I <laughs> yeah. yeah. so, sorry sorry to split up the uh the uh the uh interesting talk about the planes there, but uh so the RAF and, and the Luftwaffe, they do have a very different approaches, don't they, to, to fight a combat. Um, yeah. particularly surrounded like the German cult of, of of the ace, don't they? There's quite a, a disparity between the two.
3: Yeah, the one must see this in a broader context as well. The German military has a had and still has a, a concept of kill kill rate, and they train and exercise and intend that their kill rate will be higher than their opponents, and they think that this is going to win them the battle. And it's you can understand the logic, but unfortunately, it really doesn't work that way. And and they used it in the First World War and they practiced in the Second World War. And it's always rather surprised me that they never quite got that this was not, it might have been a fight-winning tactic and even sometimes a battle-winning tactic, but it was never a war-winning tactic. And uh, I've never quite understood why they didn't realize that. Because the German military has, you know, what they call the the greater general staff, which is about 100,000 people you think somewhere in there there's enough brains and force to try and address this, but but they never really did. So And the same applied in the Luftwaffe. Where the kill rate was everything. They thought if they shot down more of the enemy, then they lost themselves, the fighters. They'd win the war. But The trouble is they forgot the bombers. They forgot their own bombers, taking casualties. But much worse, they forgot the enemy's bombers, bombing all the stuff on the ground. In North Africa, for example, the Germans shot down droves of, Allied fighters and poorly performing ones at that. But they hardly ever touched the Allied bombers. And the Allied bombers, well, that's what stopped Rommel before at that El Halfa was the was the British bombers there. So this is part and parcel of the ACE complex. And I like to call it the Von Richthofen complex, because Von Richthofen was, started all this nonsense in, in the First World War with these 80 victories with the top scoring ace of the entire war, and they've never quite got over that. You know, they still can't understand how they lost the war, because they had the best guy in the war. But this is not what wins wars. Wars are won by your average fighters, your average pilots. That's what counts. What are the achievements of your average pilots? Do they shoot down half an aircraft, one aircraft, one and a half? That's what matters. Not if one individual shoots down 80 or 100 or whatever. And uh, but von Richthofen at minimum was a sociopath, He awarded himself a silver cup for every victim. And he had a special room at home in which he put up a piece of the airplane of each one he shot down with a little silver cup next to it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not normal behavior of a normal human being that's totally sane. But that being said, this this sort of mystique of Richthofen spread into the Second World War. And uh, before the war, their primary fighter unit was called the Richthofen-Geschwader, that's JG2. And uh, the ACE concept just kept going. It never, it never stopped. And it, it's it's operationally unproductive because what happens is, you know, the Germans being fairly authoritarian in their approach to many things, including war, the leaders get to do the attacking and get to shoot down the victories and get to get the glory. This is what happened. And so when you've got a fighter group of going along, 30 odd fighters, the group and commanders flying in front, but he's got all these guys above him and behind him, so he's pretty safe. And he gets to go down and make the attack and zoom straight back up again into the protection. And so it goes on down the line. The next guy to get an opportunity will be the staffel commander and so on. And the poor guys at the back and everywhere else, the ordinary guys are getting very little opportunity. So, to, to make these aces and to get these huge scores, which they certainly got and they certainly achieved, your average pilot is being denied opportunities. And they're not using, they're not used, if they've got 30 planes, four or five are doing the attacking, the other 25 are sitting up top, giving them top cover. The RAF has a squadron of 12, the 12 planes go in, all of them. It's teamwork. And it's average scoring and it's attrition. That's how the RAF fights. So, it's a totally different culture of battle and and of causing and taking casualties. And RAF and fact probably denigrated ACEDEM. They didn't support it in any way or you know, they didn't want the publicity, they didn't support the publicity about individual ACEs and that sort of thing.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: By the end of the battle, you have a disparity of scores. I think the highest scoring RAF was uh, Frantisek with 17 or 18, and the highest scoring Luftwaffe was Helmut Vick, uh, 56. Yes. Just a a massive difference. Yes. But talking about uh,
3: Helmut Vick is is quite an interesting character. You know, he went from a Staffel commander to to a Geschwader commander, which is is an enormous promotion in the space of a, of a few weeks, basically. So he certainly had Nazi connections and Goering connections to get that sort of promotion that fast. And uh, he flew his airplane. The minute he got into combat, he put the throttle on full and he kept them on full until he was finished. Mm. So his engines were getting burnt out at a very fast rate. And he's, I had a letter from one of his COs He told me he used to replace his engine at night when he was asleep, so he didn't know because the thing was getting burnt. You know, an aero engine in the Second World War in combat, 200 hours, it would need a major... He'd have to take it out and give it a major service and, you know, take it down and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, well, Albert Vick got himself killed for trying to be the big ace.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But... uh, Talking about aces and and von Richthofen, a former member of his squadron, uh, Theo Osterkamp is now uh, commodore of JG 51. Yeah. He's the he becomes the um, he's in charge of directing Cannocamp. How effective is he in this role as an old as an, one of the, what they call the alter Eidler? Yeah,
3: the old eagles. He's very effective. Uh, you know, Osterkamp was was I think a 32 victory ace in the First World War. He was the real deal. Someone like Goering, 20 victories, of which is questioned on at least some of them, uh, is maybe not the real deal. Certainly, Goering was never respected to the same extent as someone like Osterkamp. And uh, Osterkamp uh, used to call the British the Lords from the First World War. That was the nickname they used. And he had the basic philosophy in the Battle of Britain that to win the battle, they must outscore the British five to one. He said anything less than that, you're not going to do it. because These people have got their backs to the wall, they're going to fight you and they don't really in the battle of attrition, they're not going to count the losses because they're fighting for their lives. And uh, he also had this idea to use the maximum amount of complexity and uh, confusion and distraction and whatever in combat gain these sorts of advantages and DG51 and Osterkamp were sitting in the Straits of Dover you know 20 miles across it's very narrow takes them a few minutes to fly over there at cruising speed so whatever happens there happens very fast on both sides and his typical sort of tactics would be to put some 109 units up over Calais over the channel close enough to move to the other side in a couple of minutes, but not actually doing so. Just sitting there, distracting the radar, making the British launch fighters up over Dover and so on. And then he'd send in smaller formations from two or three directions at the same time, different altitudes, always using the sun. So in the morning they'd come in from the east to the northeast and the afternoon they'd come in from the west to the northwest and generally in at least three layers. So if you saw 109s at a lower layer and you thought, boy, this is good, let's get these guys, you know for sure there's two more layers, at least two more layers up top that you can't see because they're several thousand feet higher up and they're hidden by the sun. So he he was the, the originator of this tactic of what you might call operational complexity. He'd have them fly inland and come to take Dover from the north, for example, things like that. And uh, in the beginning, for the first few weeks, these tactics worked wonders. But uh, your opponents always get used to whatever you do. And they learn pretty fast because they didn't learn fast, you die. It's, it's that simple. And uh, Sailor Milan was one of the, from 74 Squadron, was one of the experts that had quite a few fights with 3051 and the other fighters there. And uh, with experience, knowing that there's three layers, you could attack the bottom layer. You might have a minute, minute and a half to get in there, attack them and keep on going. This is what you must do. You must not stick around and let other guys come down on you from above. So, Osterkamp was dangerous. He was very effective. His unit claimed, I think, uh, something like 75 confirmed victories and 26 probables in July for 10 own losses. Obviously, there's overclaiming. It was never that good. And he never quite made the 5-to-1 ratio that he was seeking. Because you can lay the best military plans you like, something's always going to go wrong. Military actions are normally a mess and chaos. That's that's what they strive towards. So,
0: mm.
3: and uh, he was called Uncle Theo, is what his own people called him. But he was also a very critical person upwards to higher ranks, and he was a colonel at the time, which in the German forces is is a is more important than the British forces. You can almost take every German rank right down to NCOs and they'll be their responsibility will be one or two ranks higher than the British or American equivalent. So a colonel is a big deal. And he was promoted to what they called Major General, which is the British equivalent of Brigadier General, in late July. And they then made him the Canal Kampfir, the the battle leader of the whole of the second air fleet. as over the narrow part of the channel. So he continued that role and Kesselring, the air fleet commander adopted these methods on a larger scale and often been credited with what Osterkamp actually invented. And uh, later in the war, he was promoted another rank to Lieutenant General, he was fired in mid-1943 when he was the the, the fighter leader over Sicily. Because of what happened to the German fighters there, he was reduced from Lieutenant General right down to to Captain.
2: And he was retired on that rank. So
3: they went, he was not never a Nazi and he always spoke his mind and he paid the price in the end. But after the war, not only was he still alive, unlike the Nazis, he was also very respected in the German communities because he kept his, you know, he kept his moral, moral values reasonably straight. So, also a good guy, dangerous guy.
1: And so, just coming back to the uh to for particularly the British, but I suppose you could look at it from a German perspective as well if you wanted to, as you mentioned, if you don't learn your opponent's tactics you as you said yourself, if you don't learn, you die how do particularly squadron leaders who are leading um the defense and so on, or the attack, whichever one you'd like to do. How do their tactics evolve through this period? How, What are they learning and how quickly are these things being implemented?
3: Yeah, that's a very good question. It's a very big question. Uh, one must also see it as, as, this is not just July, this is something that happened from July right through, till at least mid-September. And mm. I've, I've actually got a, there's three books here. Uh, And so, this is for me, this is just one part of an ongoing story. But firstly, I'd like to say a lot of people don't realize that the flexibility of fighter command from doubting to park and downwards through sector stations to squadron leaders flexibility of the commanders was emphasized and allowed to an incredible degree. And uh, this, for example, is one reason why doubting didn't interfere much in the fight between. Park and Lay Mallory, and they're totally different methods. So that what I'm getting at, the squadron commander had the freedom to decide his own tactics, but also the responsibility to pick the right ones. And the same at all levels of command. So flexibility was part of the deal. Uh, and there's many different I wrote a page and a half of notes on this question last night. There are many facets, and I'll go through them one by one, not in any specific order. Uh, firstly, the formations they used, the British fighters. you know, They started off with these dreadful Vic formations, and uh, not all of them. Some of them stuck to them for various reasons. They didn't know better. Some of them thought because it was orders from on high, and it wasn't orders from on high. It was advice from on high, which is a different thing. But others invented totally new formations and they experimented quite a bit, especially in July with different types of formations. For example, uh, 609 Squadron, one of the auxiliaries, one of the, uh, yeah, one of the what you might call citizen squadrons, non, non professional squadrons. They had, for example, three sections, one in the middle, one on either side, 1500 feet higher up. And the fourth section right at the back, 2,000 feet higher up at the back, is what you call weavers and uh, so on. And there's many different formations they tried. But some people tried pairs like the Germans very soon, already in July, uh, 152 Squadron by late July was using pairs. But unfortunately, they then stacked the pairs into Vex of six, which undoes a lot of the advantage of being pairs. And they didn't fight as pairs. This is the problem. Uh, 615 Squadron tried pairs once and never tried them again. And uh, 41 Squadron, for example, had a a Linus 10 step-down formation with the front fighters up high, and then they stepped down backwards, the three of them. And the backward six and the last uh, number two man would be 2,000 feet below the formation. The German fighters used to like to dive down behind the British fighter formation and then pull up, and shoot at them from underneath in their blind spot, and this was to block that. So there was this continuous process of squadron leaders trying out different fighter formations, seeing how they worked in combat. Not all squadrons, but a number of them did a lot of this sort of thing. And interestingly, a lot of the changes in evolution in tactics on the British side came from Hornchurch, uh, 74 squadron, 65 squadron, 54 squadron, later 41 squadron, split fire squadron. And interestingly, from 13 group in Scotland, the first beam attacks on bombers, the first head-on attacks on bombers were done by 602 and 603 squadron in Scotland. And uh, what I've never been able to establish to any degree is how the, this the results of this experimentation spread to other units. I don't know. Because there's nothing in the documentation to really give you a a means of tracking that. It must have been by word of mouth, I would guess. Uh, The intelligence reports and the combat reports every day are going from the individual pilots up into the the, the 11 group headquarters and the fighter command headquarters. But I'm not sure whether they are distributed from there back down again. I don't think they were. It would have been too much paperwork for everyone to read. Anyway, so the formations is one part of it by the 11th of august for example sailor milan 74 squadron had his people flying in force just like the germans and when they hit combat they split up into pairs into fixed pairs so it took about a month for them to start making effective counter moves to improve their formations but having said all of this one must bear in mind that it doesn't matter what formation you're flying from your airfield to the meet contact it's only once you make contact that the formation might count for something. And the famous finger four formation of two pairs like the four fingers of a hand, that is a formation to be used when you're expecting trouble but you don't know where it's from. It's a search type formation. And that's not going to help you any when you see a bomber formation, you've got to attack it. It really doesn't matter too much then what sort of formation you're in at all. Because you're going into bombers and the bombers, gunners, and they're going to let flight everything anyway. So one mustn't read too little and one mustn't read too much into the whole formation story. It's been overdone a bit. So that's one aspect. Second, the amount of ammunition they carried. They were supposed to carry 2,400 rounds in the Spitfire and the hurricane. And that give you about 15, 16 seconds of firing. And many of them very fast started using more rounds. Seventy-four squadron, for example, used uh, 2,720 and 603 squadron, 2,800 rounds. That's a few more seconds of firing. That can be the difference between success and failure and life and death. It's important. You give yourself every single advantage you can. Basic lessons from France already, from Dunkirk, was get in close, get in fast, and get out fast. And get in close meant the gun harmonization distance. So this is another change that happened very fast. Led largely from Hornchurch, Colin Gray, New Zealander 54 Squadron, Sailor Milan 74 Squadron, and uh, Robin Hood, Robin is his nickname, the leader of 41 Squadron, all from Hornchurch. The recommended distance of gun harmonization was 400 yards. They changed it to 250 and 41 Squadron meant even 150 yards. And that meant meant you had to get in close to hit because before the, before the harmonization, the, the fire is spread. After the harmonization, it's spread even more. So you have to get in close and hit them hard because you might be pushing out hundreds of rounds in a short period of time, but not many of them are hitting. And these are 303 rounds. It's rifle caliber machine guns. It hasn't got enough hitting power to take down a big aircraft. An ME-1110 or a German bomber could take four, 500 hits without necessarily being destroyed at all. It depends very much where they are. Are they hitting fuel systems, oil systems, engines, et cetera, et cetera. So next one, yeah, the other thing about the guns, a lot of people think, you know, you read a lot about tracer bullets in the guns and uh, you even see pictures with it, all eight guns are firing tracer, but in, in reality, tracer bullets were very expensive and very rare. So of the eight guns, five are firing ball ammunition, solid ammunition. Two are firing armor-piercing, and one gun is firing a little bit of tracer and mainly the the wild uh, ammunition, which is slightly explosive. The wild round, when it hits, makes a little explosion and a little flash. So it's often misinterpreted as a tracer round, which it's not. The tracer round is 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 ignited from leaving the gun all the way to the target. So. They didn't have trace of help very much at all. Yeah. And then the method of attack on the bombers evolved, but not so much in July. July was still dominated by the stern attacks on bombers. There weren't that many attacks on large bomber formations. There might have been eight or ten in the whole of July. And any one squadron wouldn't have experienced more than two or three. So, But by the time August September came around, then attacks on bomber formations became very, very common. So it's the old story. The more pressure, the faster you learn. But the first beam attacks were done already in the, in, in the 4th of July by a sergeant pilot, in 79th squadron. and cost him his life too, but he made beam attacks on bombers on the 4th of July already. And then by late July, they were getting reasonably common. But a beam attack is very difficult because it's all deflection shooting, and other words, shooting at a moving target. And for a beam attack, you've got your bombers going along at about 200 miles now. You have to place yourself a little bit ahead and to the side so that you turn in and you're in shooting range of the bombers as they go past in front of you. And most British fighter pilots weren't trained to shoot very well. And then it doesn't matter in a beam attack, but once you open up, the whole damn information flying past you. They're all going to fly through your bullets. You can hit some of them. And this is what you want. And the other thing about a beam attack, the German bombers were not in any way equipped to defend against them. Their armour plating was facing backwards and a little bit of it forwards, and occasionally there'd be a plate underneath, but there was nothing to the sides. And their machine guns were not like British bombers that had turrets that could rotate from side to side almost. Their rotation was probably an arc of 40, 50 degrees centered on the tail, the area of their own tail. They weren't really equipped to, to, to shoot to the side as an abeam attack. And then they mounted extra machine guns to cover this. But uh, without armor protection, you know, in a single machine gun and eight guns coming at you, it's it's not such a good deal at all. And, uh, and one of the German bombers, the Heinkel 111, they put up uh, a piece of armor between the two extra gunners to the side, but the one guy was behind the armour, the other poor guy was in front of the armour, which doesn't help him very much. So, the beam attack, difficult to perform, took a lot of getting used to and experience, but very effective. Especially for pilots that are not very good at aiming, which is your average pilot. Again, one comes back to the importance of the average pilot, not the ace. And then, the first head-on attack was also made in the first few days of July by someone from 602 squadron and thirteen group and uh, but never really practiced much in July at all. So the attack method remained largely from astern in July, but in August and September that all changed and uh, there's a progression in attack method which is very very clear from July to August to September. The stern attacks became much, much less. The beam attacks increased and the head-on attacks increased even more. And the head-on attack is much harder because you've got to fly a couple of miles past. The bombers turn in at the right time to be far enough ahead of them to be able to aim. Because once you're ahead of them, you're approaching each other. You're talking about five, 600 miles an hour. It's closing speed. The time to aim and the time to shoot is a few seconds. And... Uh, Then you've got to either pull up over the top of them or pull down below them. Uh, But the crazy guys fly straight to the middle. And so the methods are changing from a stern to beam to head on as you go from July to August to September. And the aggression factor, which I mentioned before, is increasing all the way. By the 15th of September, the famous day when they really knocked the German bombers about, there were a lot of head on attacks. And there's one famous one by the 213 Squadron, was not a squadron noted for head on attacks. They flew a head on attack straight through a German bomber formation. And they kept going. They didn't pull up or over, they went straight to the middle. And the risk of collision is obviously quite big. But the scare effect on the bomber formation is very, very good. And if you hit anyone and they tumble out of formation, they're going to at least disturb the flight patterns and concentrations of bomb aimers. On the and the machines around them, so the attack method didn't change much in July, but it did in the following two months. Yeah, the other thing that's often neglected is the it's not only the r a f pilots whose expertise is increasing it's also the controllers. The controllers are getting rapidly very good at the job in July already the controllers were learning their job in a very to a very great degree, and they were placing their fighters in the right positions. Now, this does not always mean putting your fighters 10,000 feet above the enemy. That might make some fighter pilots very happy because then they can dive down on them in relative safety and attack them. But if you do that too much, you stand a good chance of missing the bomber formation altogether. So the controllers had to put some Spitfire squadrons up high to take on the escort fighters. They had to put hurricanes in at medium levels, 18,000 odd feet, 15,000, 20,000. To bring them in at the same level as the bombers or slightly above and they got better and better at doing this so it's not just pilots or if pilots are getting better the controllers are getting better as well and the controllers were typically ex-fighter pilots some of them from the early battle some of the july pilots ended up as controllers and all this yeah I think the final point of what was being learnt in july and right through the battle was very subtle, dangerous decision that the squadron commander had to make when you see the enemy. Because until you see them, you don't know what you're dealing with. The radar would not be able to tell you too much about what's coming in. They might be able to tell you it's fighters or bombers, but once you see them, you see okay, it's, it's a Junkers 88 or a Dornier or whatever it is. And the different types of bombers are to a certain extent going to change the method you might use to attack them. So you you see the formation, you see how many there are, you see what their formation is, Are they stacked up behind each other, or are they flying parallel to each other, next to each other, and you see where are the fighters, how many layers are there, you probably won't see more than the lower two, or are there fighters flying in between them, and what's the height spacing between the fighters and the bombers? Is there enough height, in other words, time for you to get your squadron in there, and make some sort of attack. And then what sort of attack are you going to make? Now, you've got to do all of this while you're flying at 300 miles an hour towards them. And uh, you've got to make your turns to bring in from the from behind, from the side, from the front in enough time to make it effective. And the old story comes back. You've got to do it in such a way that you can cause enough casualties to make it worthwhile. Lessen your own losses and try and stay alive yourself. This is all part of the deal of a decision that has to be made in a few tens of seconds, maybe a minute. And uh, it You've got to understand this is done every day. This is repeated day after day after day. And the responsibility and the load on the squadron leader is much, much greater than on the ordinary pilots who are following orders and having the thinking done for them. And you have also to remember when the force squadron leader gets on the ground, he's in command of several hundred men. Their welfare, their activities, this is his responsibility. And who gets the right? That is, that's a high stress thing to have to do. And it's there, you know, not quite daily, but often enough, unfortunately.
2: Well, I was going to ask about um, how the uh, RAF managed to break through the bombers, bomber formations, but you've uh, pretty much covered that one already. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about how RAF bomber commander the belief that if you flew in disciplined formations, you'd be able to see off fighter attacks and that the Luftwaffe trusted in the same sort of thing. But um and ask you how the RAF managed to puncture the formations, but it, you pretty much answered that one already.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the irony of the whole thing is the people that, that break up the formations and, and, and really face the danger and take the risks and the casualties are not then the ones that finally shoot down the bombers that are dispersed and damaged in the breakup attacks. That, that's other people that get to do that. And it's uh, obviously where all the over, well, not all, but a lot of the overclaiming comes in. Two or three or even more aircraft are shooting in the long term in different places at the same aircraft. But uh, yeah, to break up the methods, you've, you've really got. Three choices from the back, from the beam, from head-on, and uh, and there's a definite evolution in in July, which is predominantly from astern or one of the two quarters astern, and then during August, beam attacks and to a lesser extent head-on attacks start coming in. But by September, the the overall experience and the message spread brought in the head-on attacks, supported by beam attacks, almost exclusively. If there was any choice to the commander when faced with a with an interception, if there was room to do it, he would do a head-on or beam attack to the exclusion of anything else, and uh, and that's critical. And, and I say it somewhere in the book, uh, if the RAF hadn't attacked under unfavorable situations, which they had to do again and again and again, they would never have won the battle. They had to take the risks, they had to take the casualties, they had to do the attacks when they intercepted, whatever the circumstances. They had no real choice, else they would have lost. Because the Germans did have choice. The German fighters had choice. Mm-hmm. The survival of their country did not depend on them being successful against the RAF, since the other way around very much did affect the survival of the country. You know, it's a bit like Ukraine and Russia. The Ukrainians can't afford to lose. It's the same situation, it's motivation, which is We're all all important.
1: Absolutely. Um, So Patrick, you've given us a very wonderful overview of of your book. Just for our listeners, just give us all the details. What what is the full title of your book? Where can they where can they get it? And obviously it sounds like there's more books to come that they can keep an eye out for as well.
3: Yeah, the title of the book is Tally Ho, RAF Tactical Leadership in the Battle of Britain, July nineteen forty. It's by Amberley Publishing from Strada and Gloucestershire. And any you know, decent bookshop in the UK should stock it. I know the marketing people will put it up in all the you know, all the well-known bookshops and all the aviation and military-type bookshops, or
2: directly from Amberley itself. Yeah, no, this, this has been really interesting, really in-depth. Um, thanks very much for coming on and talking to us about it. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it absolutely you have to come back when you when you've done uh...
0: normally being a little extra can be a bit much Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to
1: join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top of the line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and
3: supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.